Hello everybody, welcome back to the Insightful Thinkers Podcast. Imagine there are two people, one of them puts his or her hand into a bucket of hot water and one of them puts his or her hand into a bucket of cold water. They both remove their hands after 10 minutes, let's say, and then they both dunk their hand into a bucket of water that is of the same temperature. Now, one of them is going to feel as if this water is cold and one of them is going to feel as if this new water is hot, but the the new water is the same temperature. So clearly, both observers are perceiving the same objective temperature differently. The ultimate skeptic can contend then that our knowledge is limited to the realm of our own subjective impressions, allowing us absolutely no knowledge of objective reality. Just like with the buckets of water, where one objective temperature is experienced differently by two people, it may be the case that it is impossible to access some kind of an objective reality, an absolute objective. Perhaps our human situation is such that we cannot know anything beyond our experiences. Perhaps we are confined to the theater of our own minds. And this leads us to the fundamental question. Can subjective impressions, no matter how well substantiated and supported, ever lead to knowledge of objective reality? By no means are we gonna <laughs> we're gonna solve this difficult question today with, with one podcast episode, but I hope to discuss some important ideas related to this problem. The primary sources of this episode are Objectivity by Mulder from the Internet Encyclopedia of Philosophy, Scientific Objectivity by Rice and Springer from the Stanford Encyclopedia of Philosophy, and Objectivity by Grock Roger from Oxford's Very Short Introduction series. And for my uh, persistent listeners, you guys know that I'm building quite the collection of uh, Oxford's very short introductions for the purposes of these recordings. It's a great place to start if you need, just like what it says, a very short introduction of whatever topic you're interested in. I definitely uh, recommend the Oxford very short introduction series um, and build your collection as well. And, and go take a look at, at Grock Rogers' um, Objectivity, his book from that series. So what is Objectivity. Well, when I originally was researching for this episode, I thought I was it was going to lead me more into ideas of, well, what does it mean to be objective and thoughts about arguments and thoughts about things like this. But it became, what I learned is that discussions about objectivity are more philosophical than anything. And uh, this is why philosophers are the ones to really define the term. They, they'd use the term objective reality to refer to anything that exists as it is independent of any conscious awareness of it via perception or thought or et cetera. So it just exists without any perception of it, any subjective perception. Um, and philosophers have thought about subjective reality and objective reality for a long time. Let's look at Rene Descartes, the legendary philosopher, one of the greatest thinkers of all time, really. He famously emphasized that subjective reality is better known than objective reality. His famous saying, I think, therefore I am, represents this idea. Because he figured that if he could question and think about his own existence, he must uh, he must be existing to be able to question it in the first place. So the very fact that he can think is what assured him of his own existence. So this Descartes' thoughts about, I think, therefore I am, 
gets us at least to stage one um and it wasn't as simple as this he didn't just write this down and then call it a day obviously he's explained he explained this in such great depth that he was able to reason successfully about how just being able to think shows that you in your own subjective reality at least exists but this only really gets us to stage one and that subjective reality exists but objective reality is is another problem still what for instance is reality without a subjective observer many questions arise when you discuss the nature of an objective reality and much skepticism exists as to whether it's possible to even be able to perceive an objective reality as what we kind of discussed in the introduction for this episode so let's talk about some of this traditional skepticism about the possibility of being able to perceive objectivity is it possible to perceive some kind of an objective world um the traditional argument against this possibility of being able to perceive objectivity starts from the premise that things appear differently to different people so how could there be some kind of how can we ever perceive an objective reality if every person uh or or every different species perceives things in a different way. Let's consider the case of sense perception. So there is a direct connection between how we perceive the world and what kind of sense organs we have. Some species of animals have eyes that are more convex and more set into the body than others. And so they'll see things differently from animals of a different species who may have eyes on stalks, for example. So. In the same way, some animals have feathers, some scales, some spikes, some flesh. And so their sense of touch, excuse me, will also differ from one another. So the issue here is that there's no real criteria by which we can decide between which sensation is the is really perceiving the real objective reality. There's no way in which things really feel I say in quotations, it really depends on whether one has skin, spikes, or fur. And it's the same thing with vision. There's no way in which things really look. They just look one way to those with eyes of a certain kind, and then another way to those of eyes with a different kind. So we can't say that, oh, the way we see something, that's the that must be the way it is. And if if uh, let's, we'll talk about it here, but if another animal has eyes that cause it to perceive two straight lines as, as curved, they're, they're experiencing a distortion. Well, no, maybe those lines really are curved and we are experiencing a distortion. How can we determine the way something really looks? Let's talk about that now. So some animals with bulging eyes see what's in the center of their field of vision to be larger. So, um, for example, if we see two parallel lines, we see the center of the line to very close um, in our field of vision. We see the center of the line to be straight, just like the rest of the line. But an animal with a bulging eye, some animals see the center with almost like a bulge and it's larger because they're, they're, able, they're able to zoom in. Um, this is for seeing prey from a long distance and so on. So, um, but we cannot say that the way the world appears to animals with these types of bulging eyes is skewed or incorrect. We can't say, look, when I touch this flat surface, 
I not only see it to be flat, but I also feel it to be flat throughout. So this must be the way it really is. I'm touching these two parallel lines. I see them as flat. And then when I touch them, they're flat. So that must be the way it really is. But the issue is that an animal with these bulging eyes may not only see uh, a flat surface as magnified in the middle, but may also feel a corresponding bump at that location on the flat surface. So an animal like this could conceivably have a match between its visual and tactile images, just like we do. We see the flat lines, we, we, we touch and feel the flat lines, but they may see the bulging line and then they may also feel a line that's bulging. Um, it connects in their brain, just like it connects in our brain. So this is really just getting to the fact that what we see with our own eyes is objective reality that we think we see. I think I see this camera. It's this distance in front of me. This is where the microphone is and so on. This is the shape of the mic. This is the shape of the camera. Well, that may not be what they actually look like. As weird as that sounds, it's just the idea that different species are going to perceive things in different ways. So we have to be careful with thinking objective reality is so easy to perceive. Let's um, talk about this specific example that I've kind of um, talked about. This is the example of the vulture. The difference between the vulture's eyes and the human eyes in the way we perceive shapes. Vultures are, the, are one animal with this type of greater curvature in the center than in the periphery of their lens, and this results in greater magnification in the center, which, as I mentioned, allows them to spot potential prey with greater acuity. So let, let's go through the example with the vulture, with the concrete example. So if we look at an ordinary bar, we see two parallel lines, whereas the length, lens in the vulture's eye presents an image with a bulge in the middle. The natural reaction to this difference is to say that the vulture's lens introduces a distortion. But what makes the vulture's image less objective than ours? In reality, Every lens distorts reality and curves the stimuli from the world to be able to create vision in that particular organism. So in the same way that the, we may look at the vulture and say, oh, it's, it, it, it distorts an image. It's focusing on the middle of it. But we may also, we are also distorting an image. That's all vision is. It is distorting uh, light, rays of light coming in, and it transmits that into, into visual perception through the optic nerve and into the brain and so on. So every species distorts objective reality. So there's no way we can say your objective reality is dis your reality is distorted from my objective reality that I can perceive. All this is say that objective reality is not as easy to grasp as we may think. So <laughs> we've kind of gone down this road of this weird talk about uh objective reality and stuff that maybe you may be thinking, okay, well, why are we even thinking about this? Why are we overcomplicating it? Well, <laughs> Immanuel Kant, the legendary philosopher, is, is really to blame for a lot of this. He is the reason we started to think about these problems of the disconnect between subjective perception and objective reality in the first place. Kant's 1781 book, Critique of Pure Reason, maybe his most well-known book, inaugurated this new era in philosophy, one that considered how our own mind shaped what we experienced. Kant argued that the mind's contribution is far greater than what we had been imagining up to that point, and 
that the world we grasp in perception and in thought is just one constructed by the mind. So Kant in, in the late 1700s started to think about these things that, hmm, objective reality, um, though it is out there, we may not be so sharp as to be able to perceive it in the way we think. It's re- Our mind is really creating what this objective reality is. So on Kant's account, we can have no knowledge of the world as it is in itself, he says. So to get a sense of Kant's argument, let's use an example. Let's take the examples of space and time. So are these part of the world or part of our conceptual structuring of the world, space and time? Kant reflected upon the idea that we can imagine a universe without motion and a universe without matter. But, he noted, we can't imagine a universe without space and time. Now, this might mean genuinely that space and time exist in a way that is more fundamental than matter, since there could not be a universe without space and time, but there could be one without matter. Or, as Kant says, it could mean that if we cannot imagine a universe without space and time, this tells us something about us, not something about the actual principles of the universe. So, what this shows, he argues, is that we can't think about physical events without thinking about them spatio-temporally. So, we can't, we can't, our mind can't possibly think without thinking of things in the realm of space and time because that's all we experience. That's what... Um, our brain is adapted to perceive. So he says, because we can't imagine this, this is a feature of our own uh, ability to think of physical events, not actual features of physical events necessarily. So really, yes, it could be the case that um, the way we think of, oh, the universe can't exist without space and time, that really is the way the universe is. Or it could just be a feature of our own limited minds imposing our finite thinking capacity onto the universe. So, Kant was the first one to start to break this down and to really take in the fact that objective reality is not as accessible as we may think. It's just the w- whatever we think subjectively determines objective reality, but that may not actually be the way things really operate. Just because even our most widely accepted theories may not actually explain the nature of of the universe and things like this, because we are limited by our own thinking capacity. And who's to say that our own thinking capacity can unlock the key to every answer in, in such a mysterious thing such as the universe. So, Kant's thinking is similar to Descartes because in the same way as Descartes, he's kind of saying that all we really know for good are the ways in which we think about certain things. Remember, Descartes said, I think, therefore I am. He was just able to conclude that um, I know that I think, so I know that I exist. And that's as far as we can go. And Kant is kind of on a similar line. So just because we think about something in a certain way, according to Kant, that does not mean that that's the way that it must be. So <laughs> it was hopefully not confusing, but and hopefully not, uh, it doesn't come off as overcomplicating because uh, this is not a full exposition on Kant's ideas, and his are definitely more uh, well, his arguments are, of course, well, more well substantiated in his own writings. But I hope I'm 
getting to getting across the idea to you guys that um, things are not perhaps not exactly the way they may seem, even through the most rigorous science and the most rigorous methods and the most widely accepted things. Um, things objectivity is just not so accessible. Um, and let's build upon this idea in thinking about science, because science is thought to be the way that we can get closest to objectivity, because through the scientific method, it is thought that um, we will reach objective conclusions. But uh, does the scientific method genuinely provide a path towards discovering objective facts? Well, uh, let's think about that. So the admiration of science, where does this come from? Well, the, the admiration of science, and part of the reason why I admire science is, is because the authority it, it, it seems to have, um, this authority stems largely from the fact that it, it does seem to be more objective than other modes of inquiry because there's a method that has to be followed, a scientific method that supposedly removes personal biases biases on the researcher's part and generates objective facts and, and objective conclusions. So objective scientific results do not, so the argument goes, depend on researcher bias. They are the result of a process where individual biases are gradually filtered out and replaced by agreed upon evidence. So this, among other things, is so it's said, what distinguishes sciences from the arts and from other human activities and from any socially constructed things? Because Apparently, it puts biases aside and produces factual information. So, this is the beauty of science um, and why a lot of scientists become scientists because this is, um, it creates objective facts and, and it's well regarded that it does so, but, but not so fast though. This so-called rational method that purportedly creates objective knowledge is by no means perfect. And this has been talked about widely uh, among a lot of thinkers, and Paul Paul Farabend in 1970, he was one of the main thinkers to go in depth about this. He says, the rational method only suppresses an open exchange of ideas, extinguishes scientific creativity, and prevents free and truly democratic science. In his 1975 classic Against Method, Farabend elaborates on this criticism by examining a famous episode in the history of science. So he brings up the, the uh, famous episode of Galileo. Galileo's conclusions were supporting uh, the Copernican idea, that this, the heliocentric idea that the earth revolves around the sun and not the other way around. The Catholic Church wanted to think that the earth was the center of the universe and so on. So when the Catholic Church objective, objected excuse me, to Galilean mechanics that proved the earth revolved around the sun, it had better arguments by the standards of 17th century science. So what Farabend is saying is that sometimes the paradigms we find ourselves in um, shape the way we think about scientific discoveries and so on. And it actually suppresses what could be a great discovery. And this is what was happening uh, with the Catholic Church back in Galileo's time. It actually did have... Um, good theories that did not support Galileo's ideas. So their conservatism in their position not to accept Galileo's conclusions was actually scientifically backed at the time. 
uh, for instance, Galilee's telescopes were unreliable for celestial observations, and many well-established phenomena could not yet be explained in the heliocentric system. So these were well-established ideas that they were just following um, in good faith almost uh, because of because they were using scientific theories um, from their own paradigms that did work out. Um, these theories did not support Galileo's calculations. Now, looking back on it in hindsight, Galileo managed to achieve groundbreaking progress, but only by deliberately violating rules of scientific reasoning, not by following them. So what, what Farabend and others argue is that good scientific reasoning cannot necessarily be captured by some this rational method that we all that all scientists like to follow. Um, and no methodology can capture the creative and often irrational ways by which science deepens our understanding of the world. So what he's saying is that even science itself, for um, for all we think of it and, and, and how we uh, glamorize how how solid its effects are through, through scientific reasoning, and then we uh, glorify the scientific method, even it itself does not necessarily get us closer to obtaining objective facts. If you look at the time in, Gal in Galileo's time, when science of the day was, was totally against what Galileo was saying. And, and um, so actually science sometimes stops us from getting closer to what objectively is true. And Galileo did end up determining or proving that yes, the earth did revolve around the sun. So, but he went against science. So even science itself may not be the thing that can get us closer to objective reality. So in the end, you guys, maybe not even our own mind, let alone science can ever get us any closer to seeing things objectively. And we've, we've discussed how uh, tricky objective realities can be between different species and and by now you may realize that ob objectivity is maybe not so accessible as we think. We've discussed this actually in episode one, all the way back of the Insightful Thinkers podcast on consciousness and its various forms. We've talked about how the world is going to appear different to, to different species and the world we perceive may not be the way it really is, for instance. We've also talked about similar ideas in the structure of scientific revolutions where Thomas Kuhn in his book, his influential book went into some of these ideas about how paradigms of the day shape the way individuals think. And even today we are still actually still biased, even in our own science, because there are paradigms and theories of the day that we follow and we use to run our experiments, but it, it takes a major shift before we can totally change our mode of thinking. Um, so all of this to say that what we think is, is getting us closer to true fact, we have to, I think, take a step back based on what I'm seeing from uh, these philosoph philosophical texts and also from scientific texts from Kuhn um, that we may not be so capable as we think to perceive the objective reality as it really exists, even through science, um, which is which is pretty mind-boggling to me. So let's close with this, you guys. A fundamental problem for the philosophy of mind that has existed for a long time and still exists to this day is to explain how any object, no matter how complex, can give rise 
to a mind in the first place? How can mere stuff, like the neurons in the brain, give rise to the rich complexity of consciousness as we experience it, as you are experiencing it right now, listening to this or watching this, and I'm experiencing right now, recording this? How can a brain, matter in a brain through electrochemical reactions, produce an experience? Perhaps we will never know. Thank you guys for listening to this episode, everybody. As always, I appreciate it. We are growing our community through word of mouth, uh, as always. So if you like this episode, just share it with one or two people who may be interested in some of these uh, tricky philosophical things. Um, We've kind of been bouncing all over the place, but we're starting to find a little bit of a groove in, in kind of the general areas, or you guys are probably seeing the general areas of what this podcast is now it is a diverse set of topics but we do a lot of philosophy we do a lot of science we do in all honesty we do quite a bit of different things but we've done quite a few on philosophy and science and i like these kind of tricky ideas even if maybe they don't make full sense to me may not make full sense to you i think it is still interesting to question things that we think are so fundamental like this Um, so thank you guys for listening to this please subscribe or follow and leave a star rating or review uh, on apple Podcasts or like on youtube share your ideas as well through the youtube comment section the connect page on the website or through social media Uh, check out the blog posts on the website as well you guys and for show notes and access to our monthly video call where we analyze topics together every month you can support the podcast on patreon but whatever you guys do to support Guys, trust me, listening and watching is is plenty. I really appreciate um, the consistent listeners we have. We are growing an audience and uh, of of people who think uh, perhaps in similar ways about things or at least are interested in in actually really breaking down some topics. So I'm so glad there's there's an audience for this, you guys, and uh, wouldn't be here without you guys. So thank you for that. Thank you for tuning into the Insightful Thinkers podcast, everybody. As always, we'll be back next Monday for more in-depth analysis into a diverse set of topics. Take care, everybody.